So there's always a tendency when we see economic problems to say, okay, look, let's put money on it. Like we'll tax this, we'll subsidize this, we'll move money around. You know, if we, if for, for inequality, we should be moving money here and there. But these are deep structural problems that are leading to a lot of this stuff. And if we understand those structural problems and, and where the networks come into play, that leads to a very different prescription for sort of long-term health. Don't just treat the symptoms, these local problems that we're having, but start dealing with these structural issues, which are really at the heart of a lot of the, the sort of long-term societal problems that we face. cliche, but it's a timeless truth regardless. Who you know matters. The connectedness of actors in a network tells us not just who wields the power in societies and markets, but also how new information spreads through a community and how resilient economic systems are to major shocks. One of the pillars of a complex system's understanding is the network science that reveals how structural differences lead to and help counter inequality and why a good idea alone can't change the planet. As human beings, who we are is shaped by those around us, not just our relationships to them, but their relationships to one another. And the topology of human networks governs everything from the diffusion of fake news, to cascading bank failures, to the popularity of social influencers and their habits, to the potency of economic interventions. To learn about your place amidst the networks of your life is to awaken to the hidden scenes of human culture and the flows of energy that organize our world. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we bring you with us for far-reaching conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is SFI external professor Matthew O. Jackson, professor of economics at Stanford University and senior fellow at CIFAR. In this episode, we discuss key insights from his book, The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for the 2020 Complex Systems Summer School, the Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, a postdoctoral position in scaling theory, and an assistant in our Department of Education. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. And note that we're taking a short break over the winter holiday. Complexity will be back with new episodes in January 2020. In the meantime, feel free to email us with your feedback at michaelgarfield at santafe.edu. If you enjoy this show, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or by telling your friends on social media. After this episode's discussion, we know you'll understand how crucial this can be. Thank you for listening. Well, yeah. Matthew Jackson, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. So I just finished reading this spectacular book of yours, The Human Network, how your social position determines your power, beliefs, and behaviors. And I was, I was pleased to discover that in spite of <laughs> the branding, that this is not some sort of really like light, playful kind of self-help <laughs> thing. This is really a, a potent introduction to network science. And, and so I would just love to go through this book today with you and uh, have you exposit on some of the, the core ideas. Sure, yeah, it's wonderful. But before we get into that, I'd like to know how you got into the work that you're doing in the first place. Like, how did you become an economist, and, and what drew you into this kind of research? Yeah, I, it's a winding path, I guess, and a little bit serendipitous. I, I started out more or less interested in mathematics, and then 
branched into economics because it was a place where I could apply a lot of the tools that I was learning in math. And eventually got interested in networks more or less by accident, just having a conversation with a friend about power and trying to understand power and then starting to read the sociology literature on on relationships and and that led us into trying to understand how people acquire powerful positions and what that actually means and that that was sort of the starting point and then that sort of sent me on an odyssey of trying to understand how social structure impacts behavior Wonderful. Yeah, there's um, towards the end of your, your first chapter here is on, on power and influence. And so that seems like the right place to start. Um, you, you talk about four different kinds of centrality. And I'd love to hear you break those down a little bit for us. Sure. I mean, I, I guess the, the most basic that we all think of is just popularity, you know, how many people you connect with. And, and that's very natural. You know, we, we count how many friends we have and on, on Facebook or how many followers you have on Twitter, and that that gives some idea of of a reach of a person and so forth. But you know that's a and and that can be very powerful in in marketing certain kinds of things where you just want to get something out quickly and and at a fairly shallow level. Uh, that then once you push a bit deeper, then you start thinking about other kinds of of ways in which people can be well connected. And so another way that is very important is not just having many friends, but having well-connected friends. And that leads to a notion that's sort of somewhat circular in a sense that your influence comes from the influence of your friends and their influence comes from the influence of their friends and so forth. And so you end up with a system. But that begins to bring the network into this the picture now, right? Because now I, I, I care about not only my direct connections, but my indirect connections. And and that that kind of influence is, is something that, you know, I guess probably the best example of, of where that really came up was in Google's PageRank. So the that system is built off of a similar mathematics to this kind of idea of of indirect relationships and, and influence. And and that I don't know how many people remember when you first started out using search engines, but they were often pretty lousy at the time. And, and when Google came along, it was just eye-opening in terms of how much better it was. And what it actually did was it looked for pages in the Internet that were central in this way, not just having lots of connections, but having well-connected connections. And, and that was sort of a key insight that it had. And, you know, you were finding the pages that, the most influential pages wanted to find, not just that lots of pages wanted to find. And and that really made a, a huge difference. So that's sort of a second type. And then a, a third type is is um, one that's often known as, as betweenness centrality or um, which which looks at how well a person is situated as a connector of, of other groups that might not otherwise have uh, strong connections to each other, and so you know, there's there's a question of, am I a strong intermediary? Am I somebody who's a, a, a sociologists call it brokerage? Am I a broker? Am I a person who's bringing information or or important opportunities and access from one group to another? So that's another type of important influence that one can have in terms of their position. And then another is just you know uh, it's sort of how how good am I as a spreader of things. Um, and that uh, I, I've worked on that quite a bit. It's sort of an idea of how good am I as a diffuser of information? Can I diffuse information well? Is it going to spread through the network well? And that means that I, I have to have some good in, indirect connections, but it's not sort of an infinite process. It's how well am I connected in terms of my friends of friends and friends of friends of friends? And, and am I well positioned to get information out and, and have people understand it and believe it? Yeah, I really like how in this book you explain that reach is sort of this real-world midway zone between popularity and, and the strength of your, you know, the, or the, the power of your connections, that, that uh, we, we only have so much pull, you yeah, know, is another right. way of thinking about that, that, that uh, you know, an idea decays as it spreads yeah, through the network, exactly. and, it's, and it's, you know, like old news or old bread, that kind right, of thing. Right, 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 right. And in, in that sense, it's curious to imagine what a search engine that 
adds that time dimension would look like rather than you know the sort of god's eye view that google has but like how we're actually witnessing links flowing through these networks right 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 and and actually i think you know a lot of times when you think of things you know people think of things going viral or spreading most of the time things die out and they, they but there's a lot of times where they die out in that middle zone, right? It, it's not that it's getting billions of views, but it's also not getting 10. It, it, you know, things will make it a few hops away, and, and, and that's a, a very common situation. And then if you really want to understand if somebody's getting something out to a, to a, a reasonably large community, that is, can often just be two or three steps away from them. And, and then after that, you know, things can, can really start you know, time takes over and people, whatever the topic is, it might become stale by the time it starts spreading further. And there's also a noise that comes into this. So we've looked at this, for instance, in, in diffusion about information about microfinance. We did a study in, in rural India and tried to understand how people were spreading news about a microfinance opportunity that was coming into villages. And, and the best fit by far in terms of how far things spread was really three steps from the initial people that were informed and after that it seemed that you know either it just died out in terms of people no longer finding it interesting to talk about or the you know it was becoming noisy enough that it wasn't clear what was being communicated anymore so you know word of mouth lasts some some distance and then it really starts to decay and you can look at that decay function and and, and map it out this is related to maybe we're cutting ahead of ourselves but this is related to uh, some discussion later in this book about the diffusion of disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found it interesting to note that the way, the rate at which different diseases diffuse has everything to do with the dependent, the, like the host carrier dependencies. And so this notion, um, you know, this gets into, you know, questions about cumulative culture rather than just this cultural half-life that you, you just mentioned, you right. know, that, you know the, the forgetting of the network that, that, storage outside you know in in, in uh, media independent uh you know so it's it doesn't require direct transmission and like something can sit in a hard drive for decades yeah, and, yeah. you know that there's there's this sense in which we're you know interesting ways in which this allows us to research the way that we hold store and act upon knowledge right yeah, and I think you know it, it. It also points to the there's different kinds of knowledge, and often we think about people learning in simple diffusion processes. But the, some things it takes a lot of contact and a lot of of information has to change hands. So you know if if it's just awareness of something, that's pretty easy. That that's really like a, a simple flu contagion. But if it's something where I really have to learn deeply about something before I'm willing to act, so. You know, in, in the microfinance, it turns out that people already knew a lot about microfinance. They just had to become aware that it was coming to their village. But, you know, if we've been working with vaccination programs and trying to convince people to get their children vaccinated. And, and that's a whole education program, and it depends on who you hear it from and how many times you hear it. And, you know, that's a very different dynamic in terms of the, you know, what it takes to convince somebody of something than, you know, sort of a simple spread. So these things really make a big difference. Actually, we're definitely cutting ahead of ourselves here, but I would love to uh, use this opportunity to talk about the DeGroot dynamics yes, in yeah. systems and, yeah. and how news bounces around and, and you know how it, we end up misestimating consensus in this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this is a very fascinating piece of the book for me. Anyway, I'd love to hear you talk about sure, that. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Morris de Groot is, was a, st a statistician, and he, had a, he built a very simple model where the way in which he modeled people learning was, you know, repeatedly talking to people. So I talk to my friends, and then I, I hear what they have to say. And you can think of people as just counters in the sense that I, I hear different things. Maybe it's, a, it's something about a new movie. And I'll hear what each person's opinion is about this new movie. And I'll, I'll tend to just average those, right? So, I, I, you know, if I hear something from five people that, that this is really great, then I think, wow, that's five pieces of information that, that, you know, make it sound like this is really great. The sort of bouncing around that you're talking about could be that, you know, maybe my five friends who all say this is a great movie all read the same review or all talk to the, you know, the same other person. And, and, and we're just natural counters. And it's very difficult for us to, 
to sort of put proper weight on these things. And so, you know, we can be hearing things, these sort of echoes through the network, and, and that can help reinforce an idea. And it, it then takes root in us, and hearing things enough times, you know, makes a big difference. Yeah, specifically, the, you know, talking about the ways that information doubles and echoes in these networks reminded me of the conversation I had with Rajiv Sethi yeah. about stereotyping and attentional bias. Because, you know, it's so funny, you talk about how using a, a degree learning model is a kind of scary accurate model for yeah. the way that human news travels that we like to give ourselves more credit than this but that our working memory our attention you know the the algorithms that seem to be at work in human social learning are actually remarkably simple and yeah. like from a network point of view we're actually a lot simpler than we experience ourselves to be right 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 yeah and it's it's actually interesting because i think you know, one thing I, I did some work on studying that model with with Ben Golub, and one thing that we found was, you know, in, in a world. So if you have a network that's really well balanced, so imagine everybody has ten friends, and they all have ten friends, and everything's really well balanced. It it can be that a society with lots of information spread all over the place can still aggregate that well, right? So if I just keep averaging and and do something really naive, right, just just counting. I just keep counting, and and you know, if I hear something more times than something else, I'll, I'll upweight that and downweight the other thing. I can come to really accurate expectations if I do that. The problem is that our networks don't look like this well-balanced, nicely spread out tree that that you know zooms out into the world. Instead, we we're often in in fairly tightly knit cliques that are organized by ethnicity and gender and age and profession and religion and all you know so we're really in these tight-knit groups where we we tend to get the same information and then it bounces around in these smaller areas where we're intensely talking and, and keep hearing the same thing and that that gets reinforced and that that's where we go wrong um, yeah you know this is actually a, a great place to back into some of these bigger economic and power questions right because um, you, you talk about this kind of social learning and how, and like you just said, a, a network in which connections are distributed more evenly uh, can lead to better sort of aggregate estimations of the ground truth of what's actually going on here. But the world that we have is one, it, you know, where uh, in part because of economics of scale, the convenience you bring up preferential attachment and how it's easier to trust someone that it, other people we know trust. And so we end up in these, these hurting dynamics where I think about, you know, I run social media for SFI. And so there's, you know, you, you see these enormous Twitter profiles and these are people that arguably are just famous because they're famous. <laughs> and yet they are shifting public sentiment in remarkable ways you know they're 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 whales of attention mm -hmm. and that you know you get you know i think there's there's an interesting link between questions about economic inequality and questions of attentional inequality mm -hmm. and like how do we ensure that people are not getting more attention than is healthy for society right 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 right. Like, right yeah 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 Yeah. i mean as, as you mentioned it's it's a lot easier to find people you know things that get retweeted are easier to find and then so there's this sort of natural building process where we get feedback effects that the more followers you have the more followers you gain and the, the more you know attention one gets the more easy easier it is for for people to keep following and and that i think that kind of snowball effect does lead to this really large social disparity, as you're saying. So it's a, sort of a social and attentional inequality as much as resource inequality. This is a valuable resource. And, and for a long time, people in network science have been making a, a point of the fact that when you look at networks, they're not, it's not just an evenly distributed network. And it's not even something where we just sort of roll dice and some people got a little bit luckier. You see this extra feedback effect with really um, some people having enormous numbers of followers and other people not. And and that makes it really hard for a society to process information. These these people can have really outsized influences on, on our beliefs. So here's what I think seems at first like a relatively innocuous example. You know, you, you tell great stories to anchor this in the concrete. 
in, in this book. And one of them in particular is about the uh, wine critic, Robert Parker. And yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear you explain a little bit why he became such a success, but then also why that became a, uh, you know, a problem for the yeah, wine industry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, fa he's a, a fascinating example where it, 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 one quote from one of the wine distributors talks about how he, his, you know, giving a high view uh, rating can be worth millions of euros on, on the wine. And it, it's just incredible how much influence he ended up having. And, and, you know, he sort of started out as a, a person who, you know, had a different scale that he was using as a hundred point scale and he was doing things a little differently, but he ended up calling out a couple of vintages that the rest of the critics were saying weren't going to be that good. And he, he spotted them earlier and he sort of made a reputation early on in his career and, and it just took off. And again, it's a sort of thing where, you know, people are looking for focal points. A lot of times in markets, people are trying to figure out what's, what's something worth. And in a wine market, that's particularly difficult, right? You've got thousands, tens of thousands of different wines, and you're trying to figure out what they're all worth and so forth. And so you need some anchor initially in pricing these things. And he became an anchor. And then people started looking to him to figure out what was something was going to be worth. And if he said it was going to be a, a valuable vintage, then people started thinking, wow, you know, this is going to be great. Parker says it's great. And moreover, even if I didn't believe it, I, I could still believe that everybody else was going to believe Parker, right? And you, you end up with these kinds of, of self-referential systems that, that Keynes talked about and, and made famous. And and he really ended up having a huge influence on the wine industry. And and as you point out, then, then there were the distortions because then winemakers tried to make their wines something that Parker would like, right? So they, they called it the Parkerization of wines. He, he liked these big, bold, high-alcohol wines, and so all the winemakers started, you know, making wines to his taste, um, which is fascinating, right? It's but then it's, you, you mentioned that since the advent of the, the World Wide Web, there's been a, a kind of a democratization of this process, that it's easier to find information. And, you know, so, I, I, you know, I wonder about that in light of these kinds of, of uh, decision markets, you know, yeah. how, how it is that, you know, do you, do you think that the web is improving our aggregate grasp on reality by flattening this kind of thing? But, the, yeah. but at the same time, there are other ways that you discuss in this book that, that the web is leading to just remarkable exponential kind of inequalities as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it, as you point out the the web brings good and bad things with it. So the, the one, you know, we've got powerful search engines. We've got this immense connectivity. Anybody basically can, could, you know, could put out their own wine newsletter now and distribute it very cheaply in the sense that you, you put up your own scores on the web and other people can find them. So it, it does democratize things. But along with the this sort of cheapening of the cost of, of conveying information and posting things comes this difficulty that, a lot of it is algorithm driven. It's algorithmic and those algorithms look for things we like and they, they try to connect us with things they like and, and they themselves can be built off of, you know, trying to connect you with things that are popular. So that kind of exponential, that, that feedback effect we talked about before where, you know, you get connected to something and then the more people get connected to it, the more it connects. The algorithms can do that themselves, right? Because they push up things that are popular and, and sort of pay top ten lists and, and put in popular things, and and that can cause a feedback. It could also help us search for people that look a lot like us. So there's a, a, a lot of the book that is devoted to this idea of homophily, where people connect with other people who are very similar to themselves, and and algorithms can really make it much easier to find people who have exactly the same views that you have and exactly the same perspective and exactly the same background. And, and that's dangerous in some ways. You bring this up in examining the double-edged sword that having high betweenness centrality, for example, uh, gives you this sort of enormous political power, but in another sense, it exposes you and, it, it, and, and the entire network to new kinds of risk. And I feel like this is a fine point to dive into your chapter on on finance, on like the, the 2008 yeah. crash and yeah. sort of how these things uh, came about. I think this, you know, in, in general, this is, you know, there's, there's a deep question that I want to kind of orbit here, which is, you know, how do we implement ways to balance 
the uh, the potent power of networks and of scaling at networks with the the new challenges that they yeah. issue us. Yeah, and I, I guess financial networks are a fascinating example because the you know when you look at globalization, the the, the amount of trade that we've seen in the world since the Second World War has gone up by a factor of four. Uh, and and financial integration has become worldwide. So so right now, you know, if the market sneeze in China, we know about it the next next morning in in um, in New York. And and I think that kind of interconnectivity is very valuable in terms of helping investment flow to places that need it. And and it it's actually been uh, amazingly prosperous for a lot of countries. Um, but at the same time, it, it means that now we've got this very well interconnected system, and we saw the, some of the ramifications of that in 2008, where you know if we have a few companies that have overinvested in in the wrong things, <laughs> in that case it was subprime mortgages and some other mortgages and, and various loans, if they've all heavily invested in the same thing at the same time, and then, and that those investments go sour that can actually uh, cause a pretty widespread contagion very rapidly. And, and luckily, you know, we avoided complete catastrophe in terms of a, a total systemic meltdown, but it, it, it was dangerously close uh, in, in many ways. You know, I, I was in reading this chapter thinking a lot about the conversation I had with Jennifer Dunn about trophic networks and, you know, her, her conversation about you know, we tend we tend to think of this in a rather simple way, that there's you know a keystone species like the orca, that it, you know if were it to be removed from the system, that's too big to fail, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That that would lead to this cascading collapse. But that what they found in uh, this other sense was that the the more nodes of these little species, yeah. that, you know, the ones that we don't consider uh, that we pull out of the network you reach a, uh, you know, you thin the network by like 20% and that leads to cascading extinctions mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. And so growing up when I did tend to be kind of bitter about the bank bailouts. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, reading this, it, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense why, well, we're just in this position now of dependency on systems that, you know, that are, that are in a, this sort of unpleasant tension with the individual and with smaller institutions. Right, right. Is, but is there a sense in which uh, economists are talking about, you know, the, the too small and numerous to fail? Like, you know, what happens? Because a big piece of this, you yeah, know, you yeah. talk about um, with respect to news, uh, especially, you know, the way that economics of scale, like a, a great example that doesn't come up in the book is, you know, the way that Amazon has sort of sucked all the air out of the room for retail. Right. And so at what point is it too centralized and too condensed in in one space that that becomes its own kind of risk right right, right. i mean i guess part of the the financial system that we're sort of stuck with is the fact that there's so, so two things that are very valuable one is economies of scale so so actually being larger enterprises means that you can do different kinds of business and you can be you know one-stop shopping for companies they can come in and get their foreign exchange and they can do some hedging and they can get loans and there's a, so there's values both in a scope and scale of being large and having these large enterprises and then it's also valuable to have them very well interconnected because they need to be moving money where the investments are and where things are are, are going and so you end up with a highly connected system but with lots of nodes and the nodes tend to be fairly large so so even the the sort of smaller ones that you're talking about nowadays are, are you know, we're talking billions of dollars, right? So so there's you know tens of thousands of of nodes that are worth billions of dollars, and and they're all interconnected. And I think that part of the real difficulties in managing this system becomes that it's no longer a simple market where you know the sort of supply and demand works in the the usual sense, because now if somebody defaults in one part of the system that actually can cause defaults for other, right? If, if I don't pay pay my bills, you know, I, I, I borrow a lot from you and I owe you a bunch, I don't make that payment, now you can't make your payments, and that goes on and, and we can have cascades in that sense. And that was sort of the, 
the real crux of the matter in uh, in 2008, there were a series of different enterprises that owed money that couldn't, you know, Lehman Brothers was sort of the poster child of it, but AIG, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, there were a bunch of people who had large debts that were unable to make payments on those. And that's where we end up now having a danger. And somehow we have to think about how do we both allow this these markets to work, but make sure that they're safeguarded. So you want to step in, you do want some regulation, but you don't want to regulate them out of existence. And, and that's the hard part, right, is figuring out the right level and how you do this, especially when it's a big, complex system. So in here, you compare economic regulation to brain surgery, <laughs> which I found to be a very appropriate kind of complexity science statement, right? <laughs> the challenge there, and I think that the, the reason that that particular analogy is so rich is, as you say, you know, we really don't have the brain very well mapped out. Like, I mean, at, at one level yeah. of detail, we do. But in terms of really understanding all of the functional relationships and even the ways that regions of the brain are communicating with one another, I mean, there's all these questions yeah. about, you know, are, is, is that photonic or acoustic communication going on? Right, right. And so there, you know, it may be that uh, there are kinds of centrality that are not even being measured yeah, yeah. in the system. And, you know, the the question of how do we get a better look at the economy when we already have such strong trends for institutions to keep their information proprietary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're, we're actively working against the system in our attempts to understand it in some respects. Yeah. You're, you're pointing to one of the, it, it's very, it's a, I think a strong analogy in the sense that, you know, right now scientists are basically mapping out the brain. And if you go and look at what the main concern of most central banks are, go to the federal reserve bank. I've, um, you can go to the, I've talked to people at the Bank of England, you can talk to people Bank of France, uh, Bank of Mexico, et cetera. One of the main things they're trying to do is just map out the system, really just get a hold of who's really connected to whom. And as you say, the companies don't want to give that information out because it's their proprietary information. They don't want to know, you know who, what their trades are, who they're trading with, what their positions are. And the, also, the, the people who are regulating it have a certain scope. So one of the main things they're concerned about is what's known as shadow banking. So we have these large banks, investment banks, that are actually regulated and, and have to make certain kinds of reports, and a lot of their dealings you can see. There's a lot of other institutions that aren't that different than banks, um, large insurance companies and other people who can actually issue shares and, and help you get loans and, and do different things that aren't regulated in the same way. And, and that's, you know, the more you start regulating one part of the system, the more the other part of the system grows. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of like, I always think of this as like whack-a-mole. I don't know if you know that game where, you know, you're trying to, and, and every time something pops up and you, you think you've got that part of the system, then basically the system morphs and people start putting their money elsewhere. You know, you start regulating banks and savings and loans pop up. You start regulating savings and loans and people, you know, investment bank stuff. Then hedge funds come and, you know, it, it just keeps moving and it's, it's a very difficult and involving system. You know, there's on top of this, it occurred to me that, you know, when when we talk about playing with other people's money in terms of our inability to accurately measure the externalities involved in these kinds of decisions, to, you know, it's, it's a, a massive blind spot in terms of what the actual transaction that's happening really is. And, you know, it occurred to me that because of the sort of primitive nature of our early 21st century accounting techniques, there's this sense in which isn't every transaction playing with other people's money. Yeah, like yeah. that we're, you know, that, that until we actually know where the values that, you know, the value that we should be measuring resides, then we're, we're really kind of just splashing around in this, you know, in, in this brain and, yeah. you know, God only knows the consequences. Right, 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 right. I mean, you, you cut something off in one place and it, it actually has consequences far away because if you follow the stream back in terms of who owed money to whom, it, it can be four or five steps removed and, and the consequences can be pretty, pretty broad. And I think in general, you know, that part of the system, when you look at the systemic failures, it, it's been that, you know, people don't necessarily, the people making the decisions don't have the risk involved it's not their personal risk when they're making bets on, on or it doesn't seem to be 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so there's there's that question, which is kind of a kind of a long now foundation question mm -hmm. of you know, how do we use regulation? How do we use financial incentive? Uh, like like you talk about with the vaccinations, you know, mm -hmm. how do you get people to care right. about the, the longer time scale and the bigger network portrait that they're they're implicated in? Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, and that's I think it's very difficult in the financial system because it's so diffuse and so so interconnected. I think the main thing at this point is really just getting better better measurement and then trying to have a little more advanced warning of, of when people are, are making really poor decisions. You know, th there were years of investments in very similar portfolios by lots of banks and that were heavily weighted and leveraged in, in very narrow investments. That's something that just shouldn't happen, right? That, that, that's easy to identify, but you have to be able to see it, right? That's, you know, that's like a large tumor growing in the brain and not, not seeing it, right? So it's sort of, you know, that's not major brain surgery, that's minor. Um, so, so it's, you know, I think th there's some things that, that we can do much better at, and then there's other parts that are going to be more complicated and, and difficult to, to deal with in the long run. There's another link here, I think, in your discussion about uh, informal relational networks and, and romantic relational networks. And to get into this thing about the clustering coefficient and embeddedness and dispersion, I think that you know yeah. there's there's something about how do we motivate people to make decisions for each other and not just for themselves. Yeah. You know, even though it, it, those two things are obviously kind of inextricable, um, that it seems very intimately related to this question of uh, how likely is this particular couple to stay together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, no, there's a, a, a fun little, um, there's a, a paper, uh, I'm trying to remember who the authors were, but John Kleinberg was one of the authors, and they looked at at um, people's uh, Facebook connections, and they were trying to figure out who were spouses and who weren't, right? So you just look at the network, and so I look at a particular person, and I try and figure out who's who's that person's spouse. And, and the kind of thing which really tells you how uh, how to identify that person is that you end up having a lot of friends in common, but a lot of friends in common across different spheres, right? So it's, you know, that the, your work friends become known to each other, your non, um, you know, your hobby friends, your high school friends, you, you meet people through all these different things. But the, if, if you're very close to somebody, you meet them on, on many different levels. Um, and so they were able to actually, with high accuracy, point out who somebody's significant other or spouse was. And in the cases where it didn't, when they looked back some time later, it turns out that the person often they'd broken up, right? So you know, when, when it didn't match their, their score um, in, in terms of identifying these people, that they often turned out that, that there was a reason for that. You know, there's, in, in a way, uh, yeah, it seems as though that the ability to determine that embeddedness and that that yeah. you know, the, the dispersiveness of our our social networks again is is kind of an indicator of good faith, right? And right. and you know you, you talk a lot about the way that uh, preferential attachment em emerges in networks like job referrals, mm -hmm. you know. I've gone out to Burning Man a number of times, and there's, you know, there's a kind of very interesting economic conversation going out there with respect to revealing the ways in which gift economies exist in the, you know, the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Also, that you know, we've we've been sort of blind to the ways that our families and our friendships do not rely on this sort of, at least like first layer conscious kind of transactional thinking. I mean, obviously, at some level you can exhaust the trust with your own family and it becomes like tit for tat. Right. But you know, this, this question of uh, humanizing the global economy mm -hmm. seems to have a lot to do with, uh, again, you know, just revealing the ways in which uh, we are leaning on one another in all of these informal ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's sort of two things that are probably important to, for, for us as humans to recognize. One is that we, we often form relationships for one reason, but they end up 
serving lots of purposes, right? So, so I end up, you know, um, uh, uh, hanging out with my colleagues, but I'll end up getting my advice from them and hearing a lot of information from them and other things that weren't the original intended purpose, but also that, you know, uh, what we do ends up impacting lots of people in a different, you know, that, that all of our actions have network consequences. And I think that's where networks get interesting, right, is these sort of externalities, the fact that, that if I spend a lot of time learning some new programming, I, I can help my friends by, by spreading that knowledge. And so my acquisition of skills is something that's valuable to other people, and, and my acquisition of knowledge in general is, is something that's useful for my whole community. And, and we don't often think that way. We often think, do I want to learn this? Not, do I want to learn this for my community? And those are two different questions. And the second one is what's actually happening, and the first one is the way we often make decisions. Yeah, I love the frequency with which I'm noticing people talk about Ikigai Mm -hmm. You know, this, the, you know, what you're good at, what you enjoy doing, what the world wants and what you can get paid for. Right. And like this, you know, yeah. I wonder uh, to the degree that we, you know, like, for example, my friends in New York City have the most bizarre specific jobs that like could in no way ever be supported by, you know, a city of, you know, one tenth the size. Right, right. And, you know, I, it, 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 it raises questions for me about whether the you know, increased multidimensionality of our accounting and the, the scale of the networks in which we're participating are affording us the opportunity to, yeah. to reach Ikigai, mm -hmm. or, you know, to enact it more frequently. Yeah. So there's, there's something that's known as multiplexing, which is interesting, which is, and multiplexing is a, a term that sociologists refer to as sort of layering our networks on top of each other. Right, so I've I've got my, um, you know, wh whoever is is helping me out on day to day things, loans, and uh, you know maybe they're giving me some kind of help. Then there's other people that are giving me advice. There's people who are I, I work with. There's people who I um, rely on for medical help. There, there's all kinds of different things that we do, and in small scale societies, traditionally those things are layered very closely to each other. So I interact with the same people for all purposes. And then when you get into larger and larger scale societies, those things can begin to diverge. And New York is probably an extreme example of that, right, where, where people can really specialize not just in what they do, but they can be talking to very different people for different purposes. And that allows that specialization, right, so that, that I go to one person for very particular kinds of information and I go for somebody else for other kinds of things. In a small village, it might be the same person that I'm transacting with who is also giving me, you know, my mental health advice. And it's, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? And, and so I think, you know, these larger scale societies allow you to, to sort of disentangle those relationships and specialize a bit more. And yet we're also at this, you know, we've been at this point for over a century where we have trouble with the scale of modern life, you know, even comprehending it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you speak very well. Uh, I'd like to open this piece up to the fake news problem yeah. and how networks uh, not, they do not just inform and empower us, but they also can uh, mislead us or, or lead us into making uh, decisions that are ultimately maladaptive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, Fascinating things about humans, and, and there's a nice book by Joe Henrik that sort of talks about what's special about humans. And I think one thing that's special about humans is that we're able to grasp concepts in the abstract. So lots of species can teach their young. They can help each other. They do all kinds of things that humans do. They communicate. But what we do that's very different is I can tell you something like, you know, I was just in you know, China last week, I could say. And I could explain a city to you that I'd been to, and you maybe have never been there, but you could begin to imagine it and see what it's like. And so humans have this ability to communicate things in the abstract and then imagine them and, and store them. That also makes us susceptible to superstitions, to false beliefs. I can tell you something that's not true, and you can imagine it and, and believe it. And if it's a coherent story, then it's something that you can begin to, to grasp onto. And... You know, when we combine that with the network structures, 
where we're hearing things from you know maybe the same people or hearing them over and over again, and we have the susceptibility to believe things that aren't necessarily true, that opens us up to to lots of difficulties in terms of what's truth and and where is it residing in a network. So you know there's there's a kind of a backflow or a reflux that I see going on that's related to uh, Alvin and Marie Poplar's future shock and people pulling out of systems, mm -hmm. you know, retreating to sort of fundamentalist communes or uh, the, you know the the rise of nationalist extremism that uh, I think is like on pretty much everyone's mind yeah. these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. And you know I wondered is in a way at least it seems a local optimum to extract oneself from a network that you realize is exposing you to these kinds of risks, you know, that, yeah. that in, in a way, at the, at, in sort of local sense, it seems like pulling out of the system is actually adaptive. Like, the, you know, uh, science fiction author Charles Strauss has this really interesting thought experiment in his book Glass House that humankind has gone fully digital, and so you're, you're backed up on a server somewhere and guaranteed immortality. But what this does is it exposes everyone to the threat of being hacked. Yeah. You know, and so this, this was a book written before the Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that this gets into these, you know, these kinds of questions of do I or do I not yeah. put in a smart pacemaker yeah. are like very real difficult questions. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I, I take away from my studies in networks is just an awareness of how insular our networks tend to be and how we don't realize how homopolistic the world is and how much we tend to be talking to other people who are similar to ourselves. We don't realize how much overweighting we can be, or how much weight we can be placing on a single individual, either directly or indirectly, in terms of, of their, their influence on us. And I think, you know, just asking simple things we can do every day are ask when somebody tells us something, ask more about that source, right? Where, where did they really hear that? Where did that information come from? Why did they come to that belief? And those kinds of questions can really be illuminating. And, and also putting yourself in completely uncomfortable situations, I always think is very valuable, right? So going places you would never normally go, talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to. People walk into a room and you can see it at a large conference or something. People naturally gravitate towards the people who are of their same subfield and their same you know, whatever, they see a friend, they zoom right to them. It's, it's not that they go out and meet new people and expand their horizons. It's that they're sort of reinforcing their, their, you know, their smaller communities. And that's something that's natural for us, but it, it, it can be very confining. You, you bring this up with uh, shelling segregation. Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, for those uh, who aren't familiar with this, the, the model suggests that all you need is to not want to be in a very, very small minority yeah. that, you know, it leads to all, like this complete segregation of neighborhoods. And so, it, you know, that kind of begs the question, uh, what evolutionary forces incentivize this kind of exploratory aisle crossing, yeah, yeah. Uh, curious and recombinant kind of behavior? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, I mean, we know that cities kind of do this, mm -hmm. right? That, mm -hmm. that cities as social reactors encourage active mixing. Right. How, how do you see this uh, being deployed in economic regulation and, and these kind of areas? Where, or how do you imagine it could be deployed? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's very difficult, actually. So, uh, you know, one area that was fascinating was when you looked at, if you go back to the 1970s and 80s, there was a push by a lot of school districts to try and build more um, balanced, really, ethnically balanced schools. And they worked hard to do that. And what they ended up building was larger schools that then could allow them to bring people together from different areas. Some, sometimes it was busing, sometimes it was just putting together different school districts. They built these larger things that on paper were very well balanced. But then when you looked inside the schools, they became the most segregated schools because then the friendship patterns, you know, inside that everybody, that there were these large enough groups that it all split up. And so it, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do. So even when you build large cities, you know, the cities end up with their neighborhoods and their, their structures internally. It, it, it's not an easy problem. And I think part of it is just people have to be conscious of it. And, you know, you have to sort of encourage 
at first, I, you know, I always thought well, there's a, there was always there's a lot of um, funding available as a scientist for interdisciplinary work. And you always think, you know, why are they just promoting it? Do they really know what they're you know promoting? They just want to put people together and so forth. But I think it, there is a sense in which we under explore in that sense, right? Because on a day-to-day -day basis, we're often rewarded and it's easy for us to feel comfortable around people. It's just more pleasant. Everything on a day-to-day -day basis, being in your own comfortable niche where you know everybody, you know what they're going to say, you, you understand what they're talking about and so forth, it, rather than going out and, and, and suddenly feeling like an idiot and not understanding anything that's going on and being in a place that really makes you feel uneasy. That's hard. Uh, it, but it's valuable, right? So it's it's difficult. This is sort of related to the question, you know, in reading your section on accounting, you know, at, at the macroeconomic scale, this seems like one of the great promises to me of, of the blockchain, mm -hmm. right? That that we have this network level view that we can use this network level view to, you know, to tokenize previously invisible forms of value, yeah. you know, to make certain kinds of economic activity or human activity, human effort uh, to, to bring it into the labor portrait, right? Um, but then again, like, you know, we've been touching on it a lot. The more, there's the sense, like Kevin Kelly talks about the expansion of ignorance. <laughs> you know, like the more you know, the more you know you don't. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, what do you see as the sort of emergent problems or emergent risks of having a better portrait of what's actually going on? Yeah, no, I, I guess... It's always hard to think that better, more information is is dangerous. I think here, having a better view of, of of the fuller world and how our communication is taking place, I think it'll help us understand a lot of the polarization that's going on. And you know, there's sort of two main forces that that are changing in the world right now, and that are leading to a world that's much more fractional. And and at one level, it's this connectivity which allows things to spread very easily and to to sort of take root and the other is this tendency of us to you know to sort of separate ourselves and and i think it's it's it, and at the same time there's a bunch of fundamental economic forces that are leading to inequality which sort of you know push societies to have more nationalistic views and a, a rise of populism so it's a difficult situation but i think being aware of these things allows us to understand some difficulties that are much more structural and social and not just plain economics. So there's always a tendency when we see economic problems to say, okay, well, let's put money on it. Like, we'll tax this, we'll subsidize this, we'll move money around. You know, if we, if for, for inequality, we should be moving money here and there. But these are deep structural problems that are leading to a lot of this stuff. And, and if we understand those structural problems and, and where the networks come into play, that leads to a very different prescription for sort of long-term health. Don't just treat the symptoms, these local problems that we're having, but start dealing with these structural issues, which are really at the heart of a lot of the, the sort of long-term societal problems that we face. You talk about moves for opportunity. as This seems yeah. like a really great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, here to yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the moving to opportunity was sort of a fascinating study that the U.S. government did in the, the 90s. And, and there what they did is they, they took families – and they had like a control group that they didn't do anything with. And then they had two different groups. One, they gave vouchers for housing. And they said, we'll pay for your, for your housing, but you have to move to a wealthier neighborhood. So they were taking people from the bottom of the income distribution. And they said, you have to move to this other neighborhood in order to get paid. And, and then there was another group where they said, we'll just pay for your housing, but you can stay where you are. And then, um, you know, fast forward. 20 years and and people um, now there's a, a series of papers that have looked at the you know outcomes of that and there's a paper by uh, Raj Chetty, Nathan Hendren, and Larry Katz that that sort of mapped out say take an eight year old who has moved from one of the poor neighborhoods to one of the wealthier neighborhoods and look at what their lifetime earnings impact of, of that move is and the an eight year old look at an eight year old who stayed behind and then one who moved. The who moved has about $300,000 extra expected lifetime earnings, which is non-trivial. Right? I mean, this is a, a – and they, they have all kinds of measures. Health is better, lower rates of incarceration, teenage pregnancy goes down. So there's all kinds of benefits from just taking somebody out of one neighborhood and moving them to another neighborhood. And 
you know that that gives us a powerful measure of how important that community is in terms of affording you the opportunities to sort of advance and and to to you know to get educated and to to get employment and to um, avoid a lot of troubles. But that's not easy to do, right? We can't socially engineer the whole world where we start moving everybody around. But it points out how powerful the network structure is in terms of, of offering you those opportunities. Uh, you know, that, that kind of mixing actually seems to be a, an effect of the internet. Like time and time again, you know, in looking at uh, aggregate decision-making or, you know, the, the, the way that information diffuses. And, you know, you've got all these great examples in here, like taking the estimate weight of the ox, right? Yeah. You know, and how you run one of those DeGroote models mm -hmm, on this. Mm -hmm. And over time, everyone kind of evens out, you know, that, and I, I looked at that and I, I saw the way that uh, the so-called developing world has really come up at the same time that the the priority and dominance of some of the first world nations like the United States has really been challenged by the rise of the, the World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so you, you joke in here about our, our Star Trek future, yeah. but I think, you know, there's, there's a sense in which in spite of the rising inequality that we see when we cut this in certain ways, there's another sense in which it does seem as though the the baseline right that you know the the eradication of extreme poverty and yeah, so yeah. on is really going up and so like I'm, I'm curious you know immersing yourself in this as you do where do you stand in terms of like how hopeful are you you know what and like what do you consider the most sort of optimistic revelations of this kind of research yeah yeah i mean i think the most amazing thing that i found sort of looking at these were how important international trade and globalization has been in two ways. One, as you've sort of mentioned, if you, you know, if you look at world poverty rates, they've fallen fairly dramatically. It, and there's still an enormous amount of work to be done. And, and the, the rates that they call poverty rates are really low. And so it's, it's, it's not a high benchmark. But it, that's certainly made a big difference. And if you go to China now, Compared to China 30 years ago, I mean, it's an enormously wealthier nation, and and many more people are are, are living um, prosperous lives. So so that's wonderful. And then on the other hand, you also get this another benefit, which has been peace. You know, and I, I think this is something we really underappreciate. Um, I did a, a study with Stephen Nye where we looked at the levels of of conflict over time. Levels of conflict have fallen by a factor of 10. If you if you go before, look at wars between the Napoleonic War period up through the Second World War, countries were just routinely at war. It was just a, sort of a constant uh, fact of life. And if you look since then, it's very rare for countries that trade with each other to be at war. And so that's that's brought an immense peace to the world. And so, you know, the in interconnectivity, and that's really a trade network, and it's a very dense network, and you can look at it, and it's not nuclear weapons it's not democracies you know you can control for all these things it's really the trade that that ends up uh, it, it's very difficult to to find anything else mattering so i think you can be really optimistic on a lot of grounds in terms of of how the interconnectedness is sort of helping the world and then as you're saying you know the web now i've been teaching courses on coursera you, people all around the world can be learning game theory right uh, from me or or, or uh, i teach a course on networks and people all around the world come up to me and and say i, I took your course on networks there wasn't anything at my university on this and you know that's something that's really an evener um and so you you, you see great hope from that the, the difficulties are that this also allows us to do other things and there's always good and bad that comes with any kind of technological advance yeah, you mentioned, uh, this is on page 233 of the hardcover. You mentioned, if one wants a recipe for lowering the incidence of wars in Africa and the Middle East, the message is clear. Grow the economies and the regional trade networks, and especially promote trade between potential adversaries. And so again, it's yeah. like we're back to this question of, of how do we encourage the mixing? You know, like, yeah, yeah. You know Nelson Mandela working with apartheid getting people into these reconciliatory conversations right you know, like what is that going to take yeah in a world yeah, as yeah. polarized as the world that we have yeah i think you know part of it is when you look at diplomacy diplomacy is still very much thought of as a uh, a political thing 
where people were trying to write contracts and write alliance papers and sorts of but somehow unless those things are really embedded in in long-term trade development issues that you, you won't see a, a, a permanent change so if, you know if you look in the middle east and you look at the countries that are there basically i think the I'm trying to remember uh, if you look at israel you can't find any of its neighbors direct neighbors um, which are in the top 10 of its trade partners its trade partners are all europe america you know it's not trading locally it's it's trading out to the rest of the world and as long as that keeps working that that means you're going to have conflict you know the, the the neighbors have they're not trading with each other they see each other as adversaries and competitors not as as um, partners and it's very difficult to change that uh, for lots of reasons. But until that's changed, we're not going to see a change, I don't think, in, in sort of long-term peace in, in that region. Yeah, it's interesting listening to you talk about this now. It reminds me of my experience as a musician in Austin, Texas, right? Where it's like as the real estate values went up, major venues started closing and artists started looking outside of the community for their for work, you know? And so mm -hmm. artists were gone, you know, most of the year on tour. And when they came home, they were in this very adversarial relationship with the emerging, this new class of like software programmers and venture capitalists <laughs> that had come in, yeah. like the real real estate agents. And suddenly the town is, you know, cut down the middle by yeah. this, this, this tension between what, historically has given it its identity and and what is now really uh, causing it to grow and, and thrive in the mm -hmm. way that it is. And so this is, you know, these are problems that I think are, are really uh, ubiquitous and universal problems. This is not just like geopolitical stuff. Mm -hmm. but th this is something that I think all of us can identify at, at work in our own lives. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious just to, to, to kind of tie a bow on this. Uh, I'm curious to move beyond the book, what are you working on now? And like what, and, and then also what yeah. do you see as some of the most promising avenues that this research is, is taking both in, in your own work and in the work of your colleagues? Sure, sure. I mean, so two things I'm working on now that I, I'm really excited about. One, one is developing real measures of social capital to try and understand what it is that helps people in you know, as we talked about the moving to opportunity. So can we put numbers on those? Can, can we really figure out what it is that affects a person? Is it knowledge? Is it just, you know, if, if I want somebody to, to understand education and then understand how they can improve their lives, what kinds of information do they need? Or is it access? Is it that they have to have um, doors open for them and, and they have to have an ability to have a friend have done something to be able to pull them into that? So, so that's one area, and there I think we can see very strong notions of social capital and, and the importance of that and getting education and so forth. The other is something we talked about in terms of financial and other kinds of networks, and I think increasingly we're, we're able to start mapping out those kinds of networks and, and look at how economies work, trade flows, financial flows, and really understand how it is that changes in one part of an economy ripple through and the better the mapping, you know, again, this is, looks like mapping the brain out. It's sort of, you know, we're at that mapping part. And, and the better those maps get, the better we'll understand how to begin to, to intervene and to begin to, to make the system stronger and better because it's evolving on its own and not necessarily always in good ways. A lot of things happen, you know, the, the, the growth and globalization that we've been talking about. A lot of these things are wonderful, but the system's sort of on, on its own trajectory and, and the question is you know can we understand that trajectory and can we nudge it sometimes in a little better direction what do you suppose would be then the the takeaway like assuming nothing about whoever is listening to this show yeah. what do you think would be some of the most empowering advice that you could offer people in terms of you know, like understanding these kind of systems and our place in these systems that uh, you know people can can use to increase, you know, their personal mobility uh, and yeah. you know, their opportunity and so on. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, that one piece of of putting people put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. That that's that's really, I think, the the by far the best personal advice you can come up with out of these things because it's it's easy to underestimate the power of our social structures and how constraining they are. 
so our lives we think of as all our decisions and, and we've made all these choices in our lives. But all those choices were made in a pretty narrow set of options. It's not as if we had every possible choice we could make. And understanding that is really critical. And, and so somehow, if we can expand our horizons and expand those sets of options, that's where you know real, I don't know, enlightenment comes from, I think, in terms of you know, better understanding the world. That's a hard thing to do, though. Wonderful. Matthew, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thanks, Mike. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.